This is a conversation with Maria Repnikova, a professor at Georgia State University and the author of Chinese Soft Power. We discuss today what Chinese and Russian media are attempting to accomplish with narratives on subjects like Hong Kong, Ukraine, and the Olympics, how the soft power and media environments of Russia and China have evolved in different ways, how they are communicating and or collaborating with each other now, particularly on Ukraine, and how Western nations can reach audiences in Russia and China in ways that are productive rather than antagonistic. It's a fascinating conversation on what Russia and China want, the stories they're trying to tell, and how they tell these stories to both domestic and international audiences. For more conversations like this, you can listen to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. And for print interviews on China, you can go to our website, asiaarttours.com. Here's my conversation now with Dr. Maria Repnikova on Russia, China, soft power, Ukraine, and the stories these nations are trying to tell both their domestic audiences and Western audiences. My, my name is Maria Repnikova. I'm an assistant professor in global communication at Georgia State University. And my expertise is in China's political communication, including critical journalism, persuasion, propaganda, uh, digital nationalism, and most recently, I'm examining soft power with a special focus on China and Africa. We'll uh, be talking about a lot of issues today. Obviously, we'll touch upon Ukraine. One of the more interesting things I've heard from you recently was a public lecture you gave at the Lowy Institute. Um, comparing Russia and China's general media structures. Um, you said, and this is paraphrasing, you can add your own expertise, but Russia essentially uses capitalism still, things like uh, uh, sort of bourgeois legal codes, um, punitive taxation, uh, and the law to criminalize speech, whereas China's media is more akin to the old Soviet system where media outlets, um, individuals who report, are oftentimes directly connected to the state and the central government has much more power and sway um, to direct coverage as it sees fit. Could you talk about this comparison and contrast as well as why Russia uh, did not develop into the Soviet system, but China did? Um, sure. So maybe I'll start a bit backwards in terms of why they developed the way they had um, in the past 20, 30 years. So just to trace back a little bit um, about Russia and how it has evolved into this more, as you mentioned, kind of capitalist centric or, you know, a system that's guided or controlled through capitalist means uh, and measures is because we saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, in, in early 90s, well, 1989, the early 90s transformation of Russia into a democracy, a very messy democracy, but nonetheless, um, there was a passing of the press law, freedom of, you know, expression, legislation, um, and media was largely privatized. So the state-owned system, right, of ownership of the media has collapsed and media has fallen into private hands of um, at the time, you know, private businessmen, but the, many of them have evolved into oligarchs. So as opposed to being owned by the state in, in this kind of a capitalist democracy that Russia has evolved into, media has become a part of um, business empires, of individual owners. And there's been a lot of competition across those empires. And some of them have become loyal to Putin 
who of course came to power much later, but he co-opted many of these oligarchs and the ones he couldn't co-opt, they went to jail or had to flee. Um, and very few remaining ones uh, that own some very independent private news outlets um, are also individual you know, wealthy people who are able to maintain this, this uh, sort of smaller media empire, if you will. So the control and the, the ownership here is the ownership model has evolved from state-owned, you know, party-owned media that we see in China to private ownership. And as a result, tools that are used to control or contain and discipline the media are also mostly kind of commercial uh, tools, capitalist tools, including, as I mentioned in this talk and also in my other writing, you know, threatening journalists with various tax investigations, um, attempting to you know, charge them more for the rentals of their actual offices or to even make them leave their premises because they can't or they ask to pay much higher rent. So all kinds of economic triggers, tax police investigations into wealth or accusing owners and journalists of corruption. We see, of course, Navalny, who is not really a journalist, but he's a he's an investigative blogger and then he became a leading opposition figure he himself is investigated for corruption so this kind of tricks of investigating the investigator are often applied in the russian context as well so in the chinese context of course the system never really evolved into this private ownership it never collapsed right it, it continues to evolve from within but it hasn't become um, a liberal democracy in any sort of shape or form and the media has continuously remained um, owned or under the ownership of the party state, even though it has been heavily commercialized, still the largest percentage of private ownership that's tolerable is 49%. So the party still owns the majority stake in this media and the control mechanisms that follow are very much kind of the mechanisms that develop, developed and evolved over the past you know, many decades, including preemptive censorship and all sorts of gatekeepers and instructions and directives coming from various institutions that guide the media. Thank you for that. Um... I, I have to ask this, but I'm going to fold it into another question. It is, unfortunately, uh, I think one of the worst legacies of Chomsky is that in his critique of Western media, uh, a critique that I still think is very applicable uh, in terms of things like manufacturing consent, he sort of created this ecosystem where everyone is accusing everyone else of being a liar. Um could you talk a bit about how uh, media scholars in contemporary times deal with Chomsky's legacy of manufacturing consent, particularly as we are seeing a lot of crass opportunists uh, in places like Syria, in places like Xinjiang, um, turn the West's um, past colonial or imperial efforts against it or offer anti-capitalist critiques? And uh, with that aside... Within both these countries, China and Russia, could you give us one media outlet that you think exemplifies that independent media can survive in both these countries? Um, yeah, I'll start with the outlets. So in terms of the examples that we see of media outlets surviving, most visible and I think very important example right now in contemporary Russia is a newspaper called Nova Gazeta. It's literally translated as the new newspaper. And um, for some of the listeners, you might be curious to look it up uh, at the moment and to see how it has depicted the recent protest, uh, one woman protest that has happened, I think it was last night uh, or yesterday, um, last night our time, but it was a woman who stepped into the broadcast of a state media channel in Russia and showed up with this big um, 
sort of plague and kind of a big uh, piece of paper and that wrote no war and that stopped the war. She pronounced those words as well. Turned out she was also one of the anchors on this TV channel, stayed on TV channel. And since then, of course, left her post. And I think now is going through all kinds of legal troubles herself. But um, Nova Gazeta did reprint her kind of protest. They were not able to write the entire speech. But they did write, don't, be, don't trust propaganda because they're not allowed to write anything about the actual war directly, it's censored. But they're able to write, don't trust the propaganda and they whitewashed kind of this sort of uh, use this whitewash to showcase that they weren't able to print the other letters. That's the only Russian independent outlet that I think has printed anything about this, this protest. It's quite sensitive these days. You can get a 15 year jail sentence for speaking out against the war. So Nova Gazeta, I think is a really prominent example. There are other examples, but in the past week, 10 days or however it's been since the war started, some of these outlets have been forced to shut down or flee. Some of them are now based in neighboring Latvia and others are trying to broadcast on YouTube. But unfortunately, Russia's more independent media sphere has really shrunk literally over the past 10 days. In the context of China, the outlet I follow the most is Caixin, still party owned, but heavily commercialized and of course, often cautious in its critique, but I found their coverage of the pandemic in China in particular, very impressive, especially in the when the outbreak began in Wuhan, they published very, very long stories, 10 to 20 pages stories that documented everything from why there was such a delay in responding to this crisis to some corruption matters on the ground without touching upon the very high levels of government because that's kind of the red zone, but they still, I think, do it the best they can given the circumstances. So Nova Gazette and Caixin, I think, are quite interesting and also interesting to compare China and Russia because Nova Gazette is a lot more outspoken uh, than Caixin. So it also showcases that in this context of these two regimes, at least until now, there's been more space in Russia to criticize the government than in China. So that's, that's something that... Um, I wanted to bring up as a comparative point as well. And then in terms of dealing with this idea of manufacturing consent, it's interesting because I actually recently taught um, a bit of a piece of kind of partial lecture of Chomsky, but it wasn't directly about manufacturing consent, but it was about postmodernism and his critique of the fact that nowadays, you know, one can always say that there is no moral truth anywhere because it's easy to kind of demoralize the other or to doubt any side of the coin, so to speak. Nothing makes sense, everything is disputable and there is no right or wrong. So he himself you know, was very critical of this idea uh, of postmodernism and how it's being applied. He was talking about giving a lecture in Palestine and how he was critiqued by scholars there about the fact that he's assuming certain principles that don't exist, that everybody disobeys and there's basically nothing right, nothing moral left um, out there. And we talk about this a lot with students in terms of just the notion of misinformation, fake news, and this idea that's of cynicism that you really can't you know, and not that you can, but many people don't want to take any sides at all in anything. I think we see this a lot with the war at the moment that I find very troubling where some people just say, well, you know, these people are guilty, Russians are guilty, Ukrainians are guilty, or everybody has a certain role to play and therefore nobody's really responsible or everybody's responsible. Everything is just really mushy and um, lacks any moral clarity. So I think that that creates real trouble in terms of what we learn from these crisis events and how we move forward. So that's something that I've been discussing a lot with my students in my communication classes. What happens within both China and Russia when there are these fourth wall breaking moments like the protester who stormed Russian public TV and held up this sign saying, don't believe the propaganda, uh, we are against this war. Um, are there any comparable instances of that in China and in both countries? How does the propaganda apparatus go into overdrive when someone manages to puncture the uh, state-approved or party-approved message on uh, domestic or foreign events? 
yeah, that's a great question in terms of the consequences, but also whether or not this can happen in China. I haven't seen similarly kind of staged uh, protest or similar types of protest of somebody, or not just somebody, but actual employee of a state-owned news outlet showing up in this way and directly resisting, uh, countering uh, significant state policy. I mean, in the context of Russia, this is really the policy of the government uh, and a very heavily restricted and uh, heavily propagated policy in terms of going to war in Ukraine. Of course, they don't call it war, they call it uh, military operation. So to come out this way would be something, I can't even I imagine what would that compare to. It could be something related to Xinjiang or it could be something related to China's foreign policy. So to come out and directly dispute the very essence of this policy, I think it's quite hard to imagine this happening in China because, well, for several reasons, I think partially maybe just the fact that these journalists, well, they Manko said they're preconditioned a little bit more so not to speak out. But at the same time, uh, maybe I'm kind of thinking this through this as I, as I'm answering the question, but I'm thinking about the Russian case and nobody really expected her to come out either. She's been working for this TV station for, I don't know, many, many years. I forget how many years she's been there for a long time. And, you know, she's made very good salary and she has a good reputation, but also she admitted herself in her speech that she was involved in like brainwashing people. She admitted that she's kind of lost her conscience and now she's regaining it. So she was brought to the brinking point because her father is Ukrainian. She was brought to it because she had very personal circumstances that, that have kind of awakened maybe her conscience or made her speak out. So maybe it's not really uh, easy to compare to what extent this could or could not happen in China. I think it really depends on the circumstance and on the individual, I guess, degree of bravery. Um, I wouldn't say just integrity because many people have integrity, but they're afraid to speak out. I think maybe this kind of bravery and the push that I think has a lot to do with her personal circumstances. In this case, she, she talked about her, her family being partially Ukrainian, partially Russian. So I'm not quite sure what kind of case we would need to use to compare you know, to China, but I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if one day we'll see something something like this appear on Chinese state TV, which I just haven't you know, seen such a such a level or degree of protest yet. In terms of what happens, it's not clear. There was so much speculation yesterday about what will happen to her in particular, uh, speculations that range from you know indefinite jail sentence, 10-year jail sentence, uh, shorter term jail sentence. Um, some were arguing that because she has a mother of a child, I think 11-year-old boy, she is not allowed to be arrested. There's some kind of special clauses in the law that if you're a mother, maybe you're not going to be arrested. You might be paying other kind of uh, fines or doing something else, uh, some kind of other punishments that you have to face. And I've seen recent news that she's going to be fined quite severely, but not arrested. So it was interesting. A lot of human rights lawyers also stepped up to help her. But longer term, of course, her career is arguably ruined. You know, and unless the Russian regime changes, I don't think she's going to find a job in journalism very easily and probably will be constantly watched and surveilled by, by the state. So even though she might not go to jail, she will face other circumstances that are very unpleasant. So it's, it's deep repercussions that they face. As far as what the propaganda machine does, well, I haven't watched the exact news of how they just responded to it. I don't think they respond to it. I think they kind of ignore, they ignore the event and they continue, as you said, in overdrive mode to sell this, this military effort as a victory for Russia and as a way to uphold Russia's territorial integrity and its image and its glory. And basically everything rests on this military operation being successful. And it's seen as really existential almost, which is how it's been portrayed for the past two weeks as well. So going into even stronger overdrive to explain, to defend um, this effort, that's something we see uh, in, in Russia, but I think we can say something similar in China as well, this kind of defensive approach, going into overdrive mode and telling more and more stories to attempt to persuade the listeners, the viewers, that this is the right uh, step, the right kind of policy to, to accomplish, whether it's national greatness or even survival, kind of more existential emphasis on survival of the nation state. And then finally, before we look at a few uh, specific examples, I'm curious within uh, 
diaspora networks. So obviously, one of the media stories that's been getting a lot of attention is the Chinese blogger who's remained in Ukraine and is, you know, not overtly political, but just <laughs> saying what he thinks and feels and how he identifies. Um, Russian nationals globally have spoken out against the war. Now, these uh, acts of defiance to the official state narratives um, may be censored within these own within these countries. Um, this is further complicated by things like the Epoch Times, which has a, a pretty large reach uh, internationally, but has its own sort of agenda uh, in relation to how it wants to speak about the Chinese state. Could you talk a bit about diaspora networks and the value or the impact that things like uh, a YouTube, which is not readily available in China, uh, how would a blogger on YouTube talking a counter-narrative about Ukraine, or how would a newspaper like the Epoch Times, or how would Russian individuals who are on the now-banned uh, Facebook platform, how do these uh, diaspora networks and diaspora media impact domestic audiences in countries like Russia and China and the state narratives that are projected within these nations? Yeah, well, it's hard to know the exact impact because as you said, those platforms are censored. So I think the impact that it, it has or the people it reaches are the ones who are able to bypass virtual, you know, the internet censorship through virtual private networks, VPNs, and those people tend to have a little bit more income to be able to afford that service and to be more tech savvy and um, I guess more um, induced into these norms of how do you actually go around a censorship. So it, it's not the majority of the mainstream public that will reach those uh, messages. At the same time, we also see some efforts uh, by some individuals within those countries to translate the messages or to retweet or you know share them on, on domestic local social media platforms until of course they get censored. So just because they're on YouTube doesn't mean they won't eventually filtrate or you know infuse into uh, local platforms uh, they will be shared on Weibo or elsewhere if somebody makes the effort to copy these, these clips and I think in the Chinese context that has been done many times and same thing probably will be happening now in Russia given the ban on all these social media platforms that are very popular you know western social media platforms that are very popular in Russia and are currently not, not possible to use so it's, it's hard to have a quantitative kind of direct you know estimate of how many people are watching it but I think the alternative framings and alternative voices are always important because the mainstream voices are often uh, shaped by, you know, the currents uh, back home and those respective countries by state media or by official statements. So having an alternative voice that tells a story from the field or has a different perspective, even if it doesn't get heard widely, I think it's still an important effort. At the same time, I think diaspora communities are not uniform. We have all kinds of voices uh, within these diasporas and a lot of these uh, media outlets in particular, I think Chinese language media outlets are also in part now sponsored by Chinese Communist Party or they're investing or advertising there, or inviting some of these editors for conferences in China. So I think there's an effort to also create these networks as a result, aligning them potentially with more of the, you know, China's official narratives. So I think there's kind of a contestation there within these diaspora communities, you know, between Parties' efforts to make this kind of aligning relationships, uh, alignment, aligning with this individuals, especially media professionals, and then some of these independent voices that attempt to tell a different story, potentially also target individuals based um, in China. And similar things I think are happening in Russia. You know, when it comes to reaching a larger public as well, I think it's, it's it can be quite frustrating because you know you're also speaking about the basically a parallel reality in my case 
even my own family, you know, some members of my own family who live in the States uh, who are observing and watching Russian television, that's all they can, they can watch because they only speak Russian. We can have a quite difficult conversations about what's going on in Ukraine. We just have totally different perceptions and different realities that we are absorbed in. And, you know, both of us are seeing suffering, but in a very different way. So that, that can be quite challenging to, to bridge the gap there. How much um, could we say um, collaboration exists when a conflict uh, like Ukraine emerges where China wants to support Russia and support Russia's position while still maintaining what seems to be an increasingly convoluted neutrality? So if this is largely controlled by the state in China, how much um, role does the state have in sort of exporting its soft power and coordinating what its propaganda will be with nations that it wants to support, like Russia in this instance? Yeah, in this particular instance, I think um, we see some parallel narratives emerging, or at least, you know, in state media, not necessarily all official statements are the same, but we do see some parallel narratives. In particular, one similarity that I found was uh, the blaming of the West or of NATO and the US in particular for instigating this conflict. We see this anti-Western, anti-American kind of targeting uh, in this messaging in both Russia and China, so that there's kind of a convergence there. I don't think it's unique to this crisis. I think we've seen this also in other uh, issue areas. but. At the same time, we don't quite see the same exact, I guess, um, larger arguments in the context of Russia. Again, the war is presented as an existential purpose, existential kind of initiative that if we don't win, you know, we don't win this, we don't carry this out or finish this operation, we're not going to survive. We don't have defensive borders. We're facing an economic war. In the context of China, in some ways, this war is kind of diluted. So we see underreporting of this crisis and and war and invasion in Chinese media uh, for domestic publics. But we also see some more ambiguous statements about how China is pro-peace, it's supporting, you know, resolutions and uh, it's supporting the two sides coming together. And at the same time, it's not blaming Russia for, for the war, for the invasion. It's not also not calling it invasion. So I think this, the, the exact kind of narratives around the war, they diverge, but the convergence is around anti-Western and anti-US framing of who is responsible for this conflict. Uh, I don't think there is direct coordination in terms of media outlets kind of checking in with one another or you know, direct deliberate uh, coordination that's been planned ahead. I think a lot of it has to do with kind of political expediency. So on the Chinese side, because of censorship and various directives about how Russia is covered in general, Russia is, I think, quite a sensitive topic in terms of critical coverage, to cover it critically, to critique Russian government or highlight dissent. That's something that uh, hasn't been done in Chinese state media, as far as I know, at least for a long time. So in this crisis, uh, we obviously know that um, the Ukrainian side is not reported very widely. Uh, we don't see many images coming out of Ukraine, uh, with the exception of some alternative voices, and CGTN has done more coverage, but domestic Chinese media haven't done that much. So if you're told to cover uh, this conflict in this somewhat biased manner, then I think the natural step is to use more Russia footage, because otherwise, where are you going to get this footage from? Because most footage from Western media is using uh, storytelling from Ukraine. So if you want to create this very different picture, then you have to use more Russian Russian footage, Russian reporting, and Russian data. So a lot of the times when I turn on like Simon Dan Boy, I hear that they're relying on Russian press conferences or statements um, to discuss how the story is evolving, which is interesting and obviously also troubling. So convergence, you know, to a degree in terms of the anti-Western message and also some convergence when it comes to the sources they're using. But at the same time, I don't see this as a heavily coordinated or deliberate step. And I don't see um, completely exact mirroring of messages either overall, right? Again, Ukraine uh, is presented as a almost like a direct enemy of Russia in Russian media and in China, it's kind of diluted. And in some ways, this whole crisis is obfuscated and the coverage is mostly focusing now on domestic economy. 
it is odd that within Western media there was a coterie of, of semi-high-profile bloggers who all of a sudden flipped their position on Syria. Um, people have sort of tried to figure out how tied this was into sort of Russia's soft power agenda, getting these Western voices on their side. Uh, we see that same sort of coterie um, talk about Xinjiang in skeptical ways, despite the overwhelming evidence, uh, and now Ukraine. Um, could you talk a little bit about the strategy for Russia and China in obtaining Western voices on venues like RT or um, within China's internet, getting them to speak uh, positively about Xinjiang? And then do you have any concerns at all of, of some of the instances you've seen of, of RT being deplatformed uh, essentially by YouTube and uh, these individuals having their archives deleted? Or is that just sort of collateral damage for doing a lot of unsavory things over the years to be blunt about it? Yeah, so I haven't looked or studied directly uh, the cooptation of Western voices in terms of reporting or discussing Xinjiang, but I have looked at overall strategies of you know, hiring local staff and you could call it co-opting, you could call it localizing uh, techniques of both Chinese and Russian state media. And I think in part, maybe there's some learning or at least admiration of what RT has been doing because from reading Chinese scholarly articles about RT, you see that they emphasize localization a lot, which means yeah, locally, locally local, doing local hires and essentially hiring individuals to tell these stories from their own perspective, but also making making them appear as more maybe legitimate or more credible as a result of who they are, even more so than what they say. So we see on RT the majority of staff that they hired, many of them are actually Western, Western educated, but also just Western nationals, right? The Americans, Europeans, and so forth. And we see in Chinese media, state media efforts, not only in Europe and the US, but also in Africa and Kenya, the hiring and you know, poaching many talented. African correspondents uh, by offering them competitive salaries, but also the idea that they can tell maybe a more interesting story about Africa that they're not able to tell in Western press which or media, which often focuses on negative stories. So there's kind of different ways in which they're offering or presenting these opportunities as enticing. So I think overall localization is a huge uh, ambition in Chinese media and same thing goes for Russian state media. But also we see some something that I described in other writings is kind of delegating propaganda that this kind of the idea of delegating it to Western voices in particular. We saw this also during the pandemic, for instance, at the very beginning of the outbreak in Wuhan and sort of following up on this outbreak months later, China presented itself as kind of the victor, the leader in beating you know, COVID. Um, and a lot of the discussions that I've read, they would really echo interviews with Western leaders, scholars, WHO, uh, scientists and so forth to showcase that China has done well. So they would prefer to tell that story through Western voices to appear as more legitimate. So I think that that's a trend and we see this in, across different issue areas. And, you know, maybe some of these individuals genuinely believe that, you know, this is how China has, uh, has accomplished or what it has done. Maybe they're tasked to do so, but I think it, it's a mix of different things that they're doing. And overall, I think localization and delegation of persuasion is something that is, is a very big tool um, that they're deploying across digital platforms, but also in traditional media. As far as YouTube, deleting the archives and um, kind of shutting down these individuals. I guess it's a very tricky topic and I don't specialize in kind of the uh, censorship or media, social media kind of law and regulation when it comes to what's considered to be just, you know, justified action. Does this mean that we should be deleting the archives of all individuals that uh, say unethical things or work for state media outlets? Because if we think about that, Voice of America, for instance, is also state-sponsored, um, government-sponsored outlets. Should we be deleting some of their stories if they're not, uh, if they're biased or if they cause certain harm, like where does this stop? I guess where, what's the what's the line at which this um, 
this is drawn, you know, who is included in this larger bucket of unsavory individuals, as you said, or unsavory content? Like, how do we determine, you know, where to where to stop or who to include? So I find that to be a little bit troubling. Um, but I guess overall, it's it's partially has to do with branding, you know, showcasing to YouTube audiences and the company itself, you know, signaling that we're on the right side of history here. We're getting rid of propaganda. But is this like a systemic move? Or are they going to always regard RT in this manner? Or once the war ends, are they going to kind of let them spring back up and then how does that work? So I guess I'm just a little dubious of like the efficacy that it's, this is accomplishing when it comes to um, long-term implications on propaganda, hate speech and other issues. Are there any critiques that China or Russia media have historically made, particularly uh, during the height of US imperialism that are in fact valid? And perhaps if you can't offer that subjective judgment, were these critiques seen as valid by a global audience? One of China's closest allies is Pakistan, for example. China's invested uh, an incredible amount of resources uh, into Africa. Russia has made more and more entrees uh, back into former uh, Soviet nation states in Central Asia. So what is the sort of the critique uh, from Russia and China that may have some plausibility? And are these narratives being received positively in other countries because of U.S. hubris or Western hubris uh, at, uh, in, in the large, uh, in general? I think the critique that they have made is maybe not as specifically focused on the media, but more so on the political system and in some ways attempting to dispel or critique the idea that our system or the American system somehow has some kind of a morality over other systems, has a moral weight uh, and it's able to critique and um, basically evaluate the performance of other systems like China or Russia. So in particular, during the, you know, the events that followed the January 6th insurrection, there's been a lot of coverage in Chinese and Russian media about this event and how it showcased the destabilization of uh, the U.S. democracy, its weakening, its fractures. Uh, how could this happen, right? It's, you know, showcasing all kinds of drifts uh, that are happening here within, within the system and telling that story to global audiences. But I think overall, at Russia and China, I think one of their recent, well, maybe for Russia, it's less recent than for China, but this, this kind of strategy of dispelling maybe the myths of uh, America's prowess and superiority, but also very much kind of puncturing this hole in the morality of the system, because it's really a moral uh, system, especially pointing to the idea that capitalism and capital has such a significant influence over political processes. So you can kind of buy power here, right? So the idea that the campaign financing legislation is you know, so weak and that one can become someone like Donald Trump can become a president just by virtue of having, um, well, not even a successful business, but by having money, right, to be able to push himself into power and to co-opt and to create this movement for himself. So how much money matters in terms of American politics versus, at least from China's side, they often emphasize meritocracy and this notion that Chinese officials have to work up to being powerful and uh, but in U.S., they don't have to. They can come to power without that. So those kind of issues are brought up a lot. And I think the cooptation of the word democracy itself has been really interesting to observe. We see Russia calling itself a democracy. China is also calling itself a democracy. They often use some adjectives to describe themselves as a particular type of democracy. But um, the way they describe their democracy is, is, is more, you know, is more accountable. It's more efficient. It's more capable of responding to public concerns. Uh, and basically it's morally superior to liberal, Western liberal democracy that's exemplified by the US. So that's something that we see over and over. I think it's a persistent trend um, here and maybe less so focused on the media directly, but more so on the larger political processes. 
And does the public in the global south or you know around the world where these two countries are so active today buy into it? I think this this critique is appealing, especially because there's quite a bit of cynicism towards the US in particular uh, in many parts of the world in terms of its inaction or its lack of competition with China, but a lot of critique over, for instance, what China is doing. But also, of course, the US expensive military power, um, the debilitizing wars and its military bases and uh, and arrogance, that's something that comes up a lot in critiques of, of, the, of the United States. Uh, so these kind of messages around, you know, questioning to what extent is this a superior system, I think they're, they can be exciting or at the very least relatable. But at the same time, if you ask, you know, young students, for instance, in Ethiopia, where they my research, where they want to go and study or pursue their higher education, uh, oftentimes the U.S. still comes up as the prime destination, despite the cynicism and critiques that they, you know, that they would express at the same time. So I think these sentiments are quite mixed. There's some aspiration, admiration, but also some cynicism, and that cynicism can play into some of these narratives promoted by China and Russia. I want to uh, take us to Hong Kong for a moment. Um, without a lot of specificity, because I, I honestly, I feel these general overviews, and you can talk specifically if you want, but uh, I know uh, for our talk, um, you specialize in certain areas, but even this generalist level of knowledge is, is really, I think, important and interesting to give people a structural breakdown. So uh, with that preamble uh, through with, Hong Kong, it was really interesting for me to watch the sort of propaganda narratives unfold in terms of the emotionality uh, that a lot of Chinese media, state media used to sort of pit the violent and spoiled rioters, how they termed Hong Kong's uh, democracy protesters, versus sort of the noble and pure police. Uh, and this very rarely, it seemed like, maybe you would see some things of like anarchy versus order, but it really seemed to be propaganda based on emotion. Um, could you talk a bit about for Hong Kong and if Syria, if you're knowledgeable, I'd love to know this for a Russian audience, but Hong Kong was the focus of this question. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the emotional tenor uh, and why it was chosen for Hong Kong propaganda? And now with public trust at an all time low, how the heck after calling all these people violent and spoiled and all these other words I'm, I'm sure you'll get into in this tone, how the heck are they going to win public trust back now that they want to govern Hong Kong more directly? Right. So, yes, yeah, so I don't focus directly on Hong Kong or propaganda and persuasion vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong. In my, in my research, many other people do. But just from more general, I guess, observation point of view, uh, what you described, the idea of, I guess, affect, emotion, and um, some of these terms, like you mentioned, violence or calling on this idea of spoilage or being ungrateful, right? I think that that's, that's something that speaks to, in part, maybe to mainland Chinese audiences as well, that are very much used to this narrative that, you know, Chinese Communist Party has brought this incredible economic success and everybody has been better off as a result and you have to make sacrifices and you might not have at all, you know, this kind of freedoms to protest, to demonstrate, to have political freedoms of choice. They're deprioritized. They're kind of at the more of the bottom of the list when it comes to your overall well-being. That's the story that they've been sold or they've been listening to for a very long time. Um, so that, I think part of this, this kind of notion of spoilage or violence and showcasing that these people who are, you know, protesting for something that is in some ways, I guess, abstract for Chinese mainland residents um, to kind of 
demoralize it and say, well, this is not actually something that's worthwhile to stand up for, but actually they're mostly just ungrateful, right? This idea of being ungrateful, like we're giving them so much, but there's no gratitude. Um, I think that narrative is, is very defensive. And in, in many ways to me, it seems like it speaks to domestic publics uh, to kind of justify it. Uh, the policies in Hong Kong, but also to make sure that they don't follow in similar route and protest against the government in China, because there's, of course, a lot of fear of copying some of these techniques and destabilizing China from within. So that's also a narrative I've heard when I was visiting, you know, Beijing over, over this time period when things were still unfolding a few years ago. Uh, you see even young people, I was surprised by young people who spend their time in, in Hong Kong, young mainlanders who spend time studying there, who's, who had quite a bit of empathy and curiosity about what's happening in Hong Kong, still found themselves very surprised at not necessarily calling the this protest as ungrateful, but they just didn't understand what was going on. They were like, well, why would they do this? Why, why this violence, right? They seem to be so violent. And uh, even though you know they have everything, but then some would even argue they're violent because they don't have enough. They're jealous of what's, what's happening on the mainland. They're jealous of the opportunities we have here. They are lacking opportunities. If they had more opportunities, they wouldn't be violent. So everything was tied to economic rationale as opposed to a more of a political rationale, which is much more dangerous to present to domestic Chinese publics anyway, because that speaks to the types of topics that are just too sensitive. They're completely outlawed, I think, in, in contemporary Chinese uh, political discourse. So I guess this, to me, this kind of uh, this, this affect uh, or this emphasis on gratefulness, gratitude, and especially economic factors behind uh, the protests, uh, they, they make sense. And it's also how China often explains protests in general, like anywhere that take place in terms of civil unrest, they often talk about economic factors. Like this is because the economy wasn't doing well because these people didn't have enough uh, opportunities. Otherwise they wouldn't protest. Trying to frame it all in a very rational, pragmatic way, as opposed to looking at the more abstract, not to say abstract, but much more you know, civic duties and values and um, democratic ideals that some of these people are governed by, not only in Hong Kong, but many other parts of the world. So that to me, it feeds into the larger, I guess, communication about um, social movements from the Chinese government. And as far as you know, what, how the, how is this going to affect uh, trust? I think it's very difficult. I mean, it's, it's such a huge disconnect. I can't imagine you know what kind of tools one would have to deploy to win over trust. Uh, I think we're still going to see more economic tools. Again, kind of cooperation, maybe offering opportunities, economic opportunities. I don't know whether it's education or investment or something to entice uh, participation or continuing kind of connection to Chinese um, to China. But at the same time, in a sense leaving people with no choice because so many international companies have exited, the city has transformed. So what else can people do but not continue to do business with China, uh, with mainland China? So it's hard for me to imagine other tools as being effective, like more cultural tools, or I guess more non-economic forces playing into this, because again, the, the gap is just too enormous to fill at this point. Yeah, that was very insightful. I had not thought of that. Um, something I've been dying to talk to anyone about is, uh, Eileen Gu, who I think is one of the most bizarre examples, for me at least, uh, in this era of, of Xi Jinping's common prosperity, this sort of love child of like Goldman Sachs and I don't know, like Northrop Grunman, just a very like a very bizarre figure. So for people who don't know, she's this globe trotting woman who uh, mother's a Chinese national, father is I don't know his nationality, but I believe U.S. Um, very wealthy, incredibly wealthy background, um, I believe would fly to California just for skiing lessons or snowboarding lessons, I should say. And this was the face, essentially, that is all over China to the point where there's questions of if they circumvented sort of endorsement laws or laws about celebrity in terms of just how omnipresent she's become. It was such a bizarre disconnect to me that I know this is not your specialty, but I, I, I had to ask you, 
What does Eileen Gu being the face of China in an era of common prosperity say about either some of the kinks of Chinese soft power or some of the ways that maybe the narrative doesn't always line up with uh, what the state wants to say? Um, I'm just utterly confused and, and would love some clarification on this figure. Yeah, I mean, she came in as a bit of a surprise, I guess, as part of the uh, recent Olympics. Uh, I think in some ways it was a good surprise, you know, for the Chinese side, because I at least expected a lot more negative stories coming out, you know, about China as, as part of this Olympics coverage, which is which is what we often see with Olympic Games in general, just a lot of investigations and um, and covering all kinds of domestic, you know, crises and so forth. And we've seen, of course, a lot of that during 2008 Olympics, but this time there was this bubble reporting, everybody was stuck in this very constrained environment because of COVID, and then you have the emergence of this unanticipated hero, you know, Ellen Gu, who was very appealing uh, to Chinese companies, but also just Chinese public just became kind of a cessational figure of you know playing for China and as you said having this very wealthy background and she meets she fits all the kind of admired criteria when it comes to I guess middle class aspirations in China she went to all the best schools she's multi-talented and successful in so many different domains she's an athlete she's also very beautiful she's mixed uh, mixed race it's just all these different I think that features that are very fascinating to Chinese uh, middle class publics from young to old generations but especially young people so she's become kind of this marketing, I don't know, hero in some ways or marketing entity. And I think in some ways it kind of showcases, well, I guess, first of all, force of capitalism in this whole thing. I mean, she was, she was, I'm sure, enticed by all the big deals that she, she ended up getting, um, all the publicity and very lucrative deals that she's getting as part of this playing for China um, card. But at the same time, there was also a lot of interesting writings and questioning this idea of national identity. Like, do you have to choose one side in these games? And in general, like, does she present like an interesting lens to think about this duality, like being both Chinese and American and um, and being able to choose, right? Not having to subscribe to one side or the other. So some, some very interesting writings came out, including by Chinese scholars and Chinese nationals based in the US, that in some ways it was kind of inspirational despite this commercial forces that arguably have uh, shaped her decision. So I don't know, I think she's also kind of fascinating, but I don't have a very clear cut conclusion about what she really means. But I think the fact that she represents such a, such kind of aspiration for Chinese middle class, Chinese youth, that in and of itself is kind of uh, telling this kind of cosmopolitan mixed, very wealthy, multi-talented figure, something that's you know, many Chinese aspire to be, what does that tell us about, I guess, the overall dreams of young Chinese people? So I think that's that's interesting. And what made this more interesting was this occurred during the story of Xiao Huamei, who was a chained woman in uh, rural Jiangsu County, um, had mental health issues, had been trafficked. When you compare and contrast the figures, it's absurd. You have this woman who's like part of the 99.9% in Eileen Gu, or the the 0.001% in Eileen Gu, and then the 99% in terms of Xiao Huamei. Now, her story is more horrific than most, but the being rural and being poor is is the majority of how people are going to live their lives in China. Um, I don't understand, and I love your clarification on this, why was one story, I think you've talked about the aspirational, where I get confused is when in an era of common prosperity, where Xi Jinping has spoken very openly about uplifting the poor and bringing up quality of life standards um, and uh, also combating corruption. Why was so much effort put into promoting this one story of Eileen Gu, who doesn't need any promotion, really, as you sort of said, she's sort of like a ready-made sort of blockbuster movie, and so much 
energy was put into suppressing the story of Xiao Huamei. What was going on with the domestic sort of media uh, environment in China that would cause such a result? Well, I think, first of all, it's worth mentioning that the story of uh, Xiao Huamei was very popular, right? Even though it wasn't state-initiated story, it wasn't produced by the state media or um, or directed to be produced by state media. It came from the bottom up, right? It was, just, it was very much kind of a spontaneous, in some ways, uh, um, storytelling. And it became a huge, huge story. And it, it became, in some ways, I think, a kind of public, public opinion crisis or a breaking events crisis, kind of a two-fashion phenomenon, where it started, something starts very small, takes place in a very, very small place, uh, small, you know, I think it's a county, and then it becomes this almost like a national phenomenon. And that really alerts Chinese authorities because it's something that's clearly very popular. It's a subject of intense discussion and some Chinese media within that window, I think it was a pretty short window when things were not censored yet on this topic, on the story. Some Chinese media have produced, I think, interesting reports and discussions. And it was really heated discussion about just the same topics you just mentioned, prosperity, inequality. Um, how could this be, right? How could we see this kind of story in contemporary China? Very shocking story, completely opposite, of course, of Alingu. Um, I, I haven't read enough of the coverage to see if anybody connected the two or compared them, but at the very least, you know, the focus on this chained woman, um, the chained woman, kind of the shame of this uh, of this story. The focus on what does it tell about China? What does it tell about us? Uh, I've seen a lot of discussions about that, and the fact that it's so popular clearly resonates very deeply with Chinese public. But it's also, it's, it's kind of alluded to already, it's a threatening story in many ways because it showcases what hasn't been accomplished. Right? It's it's, it's a story of um, injustice. It's not a story of aspiration. Uh, Elingu is a story of aspiration. Look at this, we managed to attract such a successful young woman who could easily just play for the US, the most powerful nation, to play for us. And of course, the US is seen as the key competitor, kind of going back to the earlier themes of our interviews, that's the key target of competition. So here is this American playing for us, and she identifies as Chinese, and she's on all of our ads, and she's so uh, attractive and uh, talented and, and just you know very exciting to follow as a kind of almost heroic figure in some in some weird way but you know that's that's aspirational right it's, it's an aspiration it's signaling power of china not only domestically in terms of chinese communist party's achievements but also globally it creates some signaling uh, to the world it positions itself as very very um powerful nation but when it comes to this domestic story of shamed woman right this whole uh, narrative it's not about power it's actually about lack of power and and about injustice and about local malfunctioning and local governance but also the fact that these issues haven't been addressed the idea of women women trafficking female trafficking that this hasn't been really systematically addressed so that also signals policy failures so that story especially coming out during the olympics and in such a sensitive year for china is is i think it was seen quite um destabilizing and that's why we've seen so much censorship as a result the ap has in my opinion some of the best writing on this and Hui Zhengwu has made that connection. That's how I had that idea for that question. Um, I spoke to her last week about this, but she she drew that out. Um, your work with uh, Ke Chang Fang also introduced me to Little Pinks. Um, your writing and Ke Chang's, your collaboration, because I know you had a very collaborative, scholarly uh, relationship, um, on Little Pinks was some of the best writing I sort of have read about misogyny and uh, machismo in China. Um could, similar to what we just did with sort of this compare contrast with uh, Eileen Gu and Xiao Huamei, could you talk a little bit about sort of why the wolf warrior, this sort of hyper-masculine, hyper-aggressive figure is increasingly being seen? Maybe it's become a trope. You can talk about that too. But why is that increasingly sort of the face that a Western audience would associate or China watchers, though I hate that term, um, would associate with sort of Chinese foreign policy soft power approaches? 
And similarly, domestically, the contrast, why are things like xiao xian rou, um, sort of feminine presenting men, or uh, kua bie xing, the transsexuals, feminism at all, why are we seeing this hyper-masculine approach abroad? And then domestically, why are we seeing this incredibly concentrated approach to break up feminism or anything that is not heteronormative, anything that is queer? Yeah, so in this research, what I found actually most fascinating in this collaborative project with, with Kachang was just how much of this misogyny and machismo is, a, is apparent not only in the more nationalistic circles, but also in the more in the liberal ones as well. Because in this article, we uncovered that Little Pink you know, the association of little pinks with women was actually false. Uh, it was primarily, or at least majority male uh, netizens who were uh, under this label in terms of nationalistic content they were producing at the time we're talking about Taiwan and um, the elections that took place in Taiwan that were positioning themselves as kind of anti-mainland and the attempt by many netizens to bring Taiwan back into China's orbit, mainland China's orbit. The idea there uh, of this communication patterns were not really carried out by by women, but a lot of liberals uh, on Chinese web, but they, they thought these were female nationalists. So the way they talked about some of these uh, women, their alleged nationalists was just so misogynistic that it, it was really, yeah, quite disturbing to discover just how much, I guess, um, how much convergence there is across discourses, across different political um, orientations in China when it comes to when it comes to machismo, right? It's, it's present on both sides. It's not just the conservative nationalistic things. That's just the first thing I wanted to bring out there. That's something we found, I think, I found very interesting from, from uh, working on this piece with Kachang. Um, and of course, disturbing thinking about just the overall future of, I guess, gender norms in China. How does that play out if we see this misogyny on both sides? And then when it comes to the wolf warrior diplomacy and this kind of uh, manly, again, masculine image of China, I guess the more aggressive, offensive, defensive sort of style of communication, I think part of it, Part of it has kind of historic uh, legacy when you look at wolf warrior diplomacy and Peter Martin just published an interesting book about that kind of historicizing this idea of just diplomatic practices and a lot of the heroes and key um, characters in his book. And I think the characters we see on Chinese social media are men, they're male characters as opposed to female. We see it, we have some female characters like Hua Chunyin, but not that many. Um, a lot of them are, are themselves, you know, male diplomats and they really embrace this kind of um, strong, I don't know if it's patriarchal or macho kind of style of communication, confident, right, assertive. So I think that that assertiveness is also seen with maybe in part with reflecting China's rise, becoming a more assertive power. And oftentimes I think assertiveness and the projection of power is very much um, carried out in contact with patriarchy or at the very least the emphasis, re-emphasis of kind of male uh, prowess. So I think we see this also in Russia. There's been really interesting writings about uh, Putin's popularity and his machismo. And of course, in Chinese social media, there's also a lot of admiration for Putin and this and his precise kind of macho imagery and a lot of fascination with how he's the real man. And if only Chinese leaders were as real, as powerful, as strong as Putin. So that that is interesting, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and then, you know, when you talk about uh, the idea of domestic kind of... Um, I guess, tensions around masculinity, femininity, you know, this, this notion of emphasizing or drawing the lines of what's what's real and what's tolerable. I think that also goes back to the recent policies uh, in terms of returning to traditional values, kind of emphasizing traditional family values and what's considered to be the right way to be uh, male or female or, or what kind of relationships are endorsed by the state and what kinds um, are not. And I think, again, we see very much parallels in Russia, a lot of focus on traditional values in the context of Russia is about religious values as well, but really a strong uh, attack and critique of anything alternative, whether it's 
alternative forms of sexuality or um, intimate relations or how one portrays one's masculinity or femininity, all of that is kind of rejected. In part, I think, because it's seen as a threat. It's seen as a potential critique, as a potential way or lens to um, engage in politics also beyond one's you know, individual life. One can also expand that onto the wider political life. So I think that that's why we also see quite a bit of frictions uh, on that within China. And of course, it's, it's ironic because it's um, in the end of the day, I think people always find ways to resist these um, templates of how to be or how to carry oneself and that resistance um, can also backfire. So I don't think it's necessarily something that can be really held tight in this very contained manner in the long term. But it's an interesting, interesting forces to observe at play both internationally and domestically when it comes to uh, containing these alternative expressions and then portraying power as a very much a masculine power, uh, kind of a, a one way, one directional, uh, very assertive, and what this actually means um, in terms of perceptions of China and Russia on the global stage. Two figures came to mind while we were discussing today. They were Zelensky, obviously speaking in Russian, two Russians. Um, I know he's a Russian native speaker. Uh, but also Kevin Rudd uh, kept coming to mind as this example of someone who fluent in Mandarin has been seen as this sort of channel of power or this individual who can sort of push back on sort of Chinese soft power narratives because he's so respected in the country for his Mandarin. Um, are there any thoughts that you've had watching Zelensky or sort of the knowledge of figures like Kevin Rudd? What advice have you given to either policy speakers or academia? What are the conversations going on? Or we know this soft power is, is right now sort of pretty antagonistic. How can we look to a figure like a Zelensky, a Rudd, or in general, this speaking to China and Russia not being combative, what are the ways that we can engage with these narratives without being sort of hostile, like these individuals, no matter the very difficult circumstances, both Australia, to a lesser degree, and Ukraine uh, have with nations like China and Russia? So first, in terms of where to find my research, um, you can find this by either following on Twitter, it's, um, you know, at Maria Rapnikova, and the same thing goes for my website, it's mariarapnikova.com, so it's just my name and my last name, and I publicize my research there, but also if there's anything that you're interested in reading and that's not accessible to you, I'm all about open access, <laughs> so in terms of my work, if anybody has interest in this, in any of this research, I'm happy to send you a copy of my new book, it's called Chinese Soft Power, and my former book on Chinese media politics, or any other articles that you find um, curious about, I'm happy to share anything uh, you like directly so please let me know and in terms of learning from figures like Zelensky and Kevin Rudd uh, I think I'll speak a little bit about Zelensky because he's just so timely at this moment um, I think there are a few things that one can learn from and one is that you already alluded to this idea of speaking to Russia or Russians right I think he very much differentiates between the leadership of a country and the people and that's something that we don't often do in the policy discussions here in the west we, there's oftentimes conflation for instance China what does China mean China is often conflated with Chinese Communist Party Chinese leadership um, Chinese people are conflated with the party, everything is just fused together. I think Zelensky does a good job of differentiating between the two. He differentiates between Russian public and Russian state and Putin and Russian government. He tries to kind of create more layers to which he speaks directly in, in again, in, in Russian, right? So that's one thing. I think the second is a degree of empathy, you know, even though his own country is at war and facing so much devastation, his policy has been to communicate um, as much empathy as he can to those actors involved on the Russian side who are not representing the government, right? Kind of in, in a way are themselves victims in this, in this conflict. So for instance, Russian soldiers 
have been allowed to call home when they're captured in, in Ukraine. Um, so they're allowed to call their mothers and many of these mothers had no idea that the soldiers were actually, uh, that, that their sons were fighting already in Kiev or in parts of Ukraine they were not supposed to be sent to. So they were quite shocked to discover this information themselves. So calling their mothers, there was a hotline for the mothers to call to look for their sons and trying to treat the soldiers as humanely as possible when they're captured, understanding that uh, despite everything, uh, many of them were also unaware of the kind of conflict and the kind of um, mission, you know, they were in some ways coerced into. So so I, I found this kind of humanity, empathy, and differentiation between the public and the state. I think it's, it's really quite impactful and just also very personal narratives, you know, speaking as a leader, he speaks directly from his own experience uh, and there's very little arrogance or kind of a, even though he's a former performer, like you don't feel like it's very performative. A lot of it uh, feels quite sincere and at the same time, very coherent. So impressive rhetoric overall, but also just uh, impressive um, differentiation across audiences, the way he's able to speak to different audiences and uh, connect with them um, in, a, I think, pretty powerful ways. So that's my takeaway from that. Thank mm-hmm. you.